Welcome back to The Podvocate. I'm your host today, Jacob Kupferman. Today, we are very lucky to be joined by Hillel Neuer, the Executive Director of the UN Watch. The UN Watch is a non-governmental organization based in Geneva, Switzerland, with a primary focus of ensuring that the United Nations justly applies its core principles. A local newspaper in Geneva has described Hillel Neuer as a human rights activist who is, quote, feared and dreaded by the world's dictatorships. The Journal de Montreal wrote that Neuer makes the UN tremble, and Israel's Ma'ariv newspaper named him to the list of one of the top 100 most influential Jewish people in the world. Hillel has become one of the leaders in the global fight for human rights, and we're grateful that he's decided to join us to discuss the United Nations, its role in international law, and how COVID-19 has changed its calculations. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this is The Podvocate. We are law students exploring the vanguard of the legal world with experts from our backyard and beyond. Subscribe to The Podvocate wherever you get your podcasts. We are joined by Hillel Neuer, and Hillel, again, thank you so much for your time today. We are so grateful, and we're really excited to have you. Before we jump into discussing the United Nations in general, give our listeners a little bit of background in what it is that brought you to work for the UN Watch. Well, the work that I do at UN Watch is the kind of work I think that I wanted to do from a young age and be involved in issues concerning law, politics, international affairs, human rights, fighting against anti-Semitism, equal treatment of Israel. They're all issues that have been important to me and UN Watch offers the opportunity to have a a meaningful professional life. And that's really terrific. Yeah, that is beautiful. And I I know based on your background, you know, you've worked in think tanks, you've done civil rights litigation, you even clerked in the Israeli Supreme Court. One of the things that we at The Podvocate have focused on as, as one of our themes this season is these different pathways that are available to people with legal backgrounds other than just litigation. So in your work, working with the United Nations and with UN Watch, what role has your legal education played in furthering your career? Well, it, it was significant, I think. Uh, to do the work that I do at UN Watch does not necessarily require a legal education. My predecessors were not lawyers. They were individuals who had degrees in international relations and that sort of background. But it, in my opinion, is extremely useful to know how to advocate, how to make a case uh, the way the way lawyers do to, to marshal the law and the facts and how to argue. So I, I think a good legal training and not just in law school, but it, with a litigation background, if someone's, if someone's done good litigation work for a few years, I think that can be tremendous experience. Absolutely. And for those that, that haven't yet, we are, are going to upload some of your, your videos to our, our website, thepodvocate.com. But it's very apparent when you're able to watch how you present your philosophies and your arguments in front of the United Nations, it's really clear that you do bring that legal perspective. And it's, it's very fascinating to watch. In this work as the executive director of UN Watch, how do you interplay with the United Nations and what role do you serve in terms of the United Nations hierarchy? Well, UN Watch is an observer at the UN or what's called a non-governmental organization, an NGO. That is a particular status that is granted to nonprofit groups that have been uh, vetted by the UN and by a 19-nation committee that gives credentials. And so along with thousands of other groups that, that enjoy that status. 
Uh, we're one of the few groups here in Geneva, Switzerland, which is the headquarters of the UN Human Rights Infrastructure. Uh, we're one of the few groups that is permanently based here and that is certainly permanently participating with and watching what the UN does. So we are present at every meaningful human rights debate that takes place at the United Nations Human Rights Council and related bodies. There are treaty bodies such as the Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination or the Committee Against Torture, There's seven treaty bodies here in Geneva and various other committees and councils that meet. And we have access, physical access to the United Nations as well as virtual access to certain backend websites that publish information that the general public do not have access to. And we have a certain status, uh, what's called consultative status, whereby we're invited to make submissions, written and oral submissions in these debates. So when a debate takes place, the ambassador of France might speak and Malawi and Great Britain and Syria and Lebanon and Pakistan and Venezuela, but then UN Watch along with other NGOs. And that's quite distinctive in the UN system because it's not the case very much in New York. If there's a debate in New York at the UN General Assembly or at the UN Security Council, it, it's really a debate of member states and the UN is a club of member states. But in Geneva and at, in generally in the human rights infrastructure for a variety of historical reasons, the role of NGOs was kind of grandfathered in. And so we are stakeholders, we're players. We're, we're in the ring together with the others. We don't vote as, for example, the Human Rights Council, 47 member states get to vote. Other countries are present in the room, but, uh, but don't speak. And we're kind of have the same status more or less as the other countries, the non-voting observer states do. For example, Canada currently is not a member of the Human Rights Council and is, has a status as an observer. America too, the US had a seat but pulled out and the US is an observer. We have a similar status and we're, we're players. We're in the ring with the rest of them and it's quite significant. It sounds like a, a sight to behold almost to be a part of these things. And you've given so many things to unpack in that answer. I want to jump first to the contrast between what takes place under the United Nations umbrella in Geneva as opposed to New York. So you mentioned that the human rights infrastructure is all in Geneva. And you've also mentioned that there's a little bit more interaction with NGOs in Geneva. But for the average person who isn't quite as aware of the split and why there's United Nations headquarters in Geneva as well as New York. What is the purpose of having those two locations and are they for different specific purposes or do they try and accomplish the same goal? I'm not sure if anyone ever sat down and, and uh, articulated a purpose of placing different offices in different cities. It emerged historically uh, the way that sometimes campuses do in, in certain cities. You have a, a campus in one part of the city and a campus in another city. In Jerusalem where I live, for example, there is the Mount Scopus is the original and main campus of the Hebrew University, but for historical reasons, the, the area was illegally occupied by Jordan after the 1948 war until 1967, uh, even though that was meant to be a uh, sort of um, under the partition plan that was the, Mount Scopus was meant to go to the, to the Jewish state. Um, but there was no access because Jordan occupied the area. So they built up another campus. And then after 67, when Israel regained that part of, of uh, Jerusalem, they, they kept the two campuses and, and they you know, divided things. So the United Nations has uh, its own history. In 1945, it was decided ultimately to make the headquarters in New York City. Uh, of course, Geneva was where the League of Nations, the precursor to the United Nations, that was founded basically in the 1920s in the wake of the First World War and the Treaty of Versailles. 
and Geneva was the headquarters. It was, there was no UN, the, whatever, that, that the, the equivalent of the UN was in Geneva. So Geneva was the world headquarters in the 1920s and 30s when World War II broke out, the work of the League of Nations was effectively frozen. And after the war, a new body was created, the United Nations in New York, but Geneva still had this very large campus called the Palais des Nations, the Palace of Nations. And uh, over time, through various reasons, they determined which bodies would meet in New York and which in Geneva. And there's other UN headquarters as well. Vienna is a significant UN headquarters. The IAEA is based there. The Office on Drugs and Crime and, and a few other UN agencies are based in Vienna. Um, in Montreal, there's ICAO, Civil Aviation Authority. Uh, in Beirut, there's a, a UN headquarters. In Nairobi, there's a UN headquarters. So there, there are, through various reasons, some of it's political, but um, countries want to have a, a UN presence. It, it contributes hundreds of millions of dollars to the local economy and uh, prestige. So Paris has UNESCO. And I would say the countries that host these, uh, that are host countries to these agencies would, would quite zealously try to guard them from being moved. And it happens sometimes. Geneva is an expensive city. And there were, there were uh, United Nations at some point, countries said, why, why should we be paying huge amounts to be in Geneva? Let's go somewhere like Hungary and stuff like that. And actually some of the UN refugee agencies uh, work was outsourced to, to Hungary moving from Geneva, but the headquarters is still here. So for, for various historical reasons and sometimes political reasons, some UN offices were placed in different cities, but New York is certainly the main headquarters, place of the home of the Security Council. General Assembly, the Secretary General, and the thousands of staff that he has, those are all based in New York. Geneva is definitely number two. Specialized agencies such as the Intellectual Property Organization, World Health Organization, International Labor Organization, UN Refugee Agency, and of course, the Human Rights Council and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights, among other things. Those are all based in Geneva, and, and Geneva has the majority of the specialized agencies are based in Geneva. Well, it's, and it's fascinating too, you know, you mentioned these sprawling campuses that sprout up. I was actually lucky enough to be in Geneva um, at the end of 2019. And it is, it is a, a massive campus. It's beautiful, it's intimidating, and it's, it's definitely a sight to behold. So you mentioned that, that New York clearly serves as the headquarters of the United Nations. And, you know, our, our listenership were geared towards legal scholars and young lawyers. What kind of authority does the United Nations hold in terms of drafting and enforcing international law? It's a matter of, of some controversy. I would say that those who are closer to the system would like to think that the United Nations plays a significant role in the area of international law. And there's distinction, distinctions between hard law and soft law. But the reality is that scholars agree that ultimately, according to the UN Charter, the General Assembly's resolutions have the status of recommendations to states, they are not binding. They do not create international law and no state can be found you know, guilty of violating a UN General Assembly resolution. They are political statements. That was a decision made when the General Assembly was created. They're political statements dictated by whichever group of states can marshal a majority on a given issue at a given time. So although you know, professors who teach about the United Nations would like to imagine that a UN General Assembly resolution is extremely meaningful. The reality is that they're purely the status of recommendations. General Assembly is a political body, it's not a legal body, and its resolutions cannot be in any form legally binding. There are some marginal exceptions when they deal with some budgetary matters 
that they may be considered uh, binding you know, on, on the United Nations. But uh, when we speak about the Security Council, even there, it's, uh, it's, it's less clear. The Security Council resolutions are only binding when the Council acts under Chapter 7 of the United Nations Charter and declares that there's been an act of aggression by a state or that a state's action is a threat to world peace or security. The Security Council is, of course, itself also a political body and its resolutions, when, when not adopted under Chapter 7, are political statements and they are not legal judgments. So even in, in this world where the UN is a political body, not a, a law-creating body, those statements and those, those resolutions that are passed by the United Nations clearly still carry a lot of weight. And that's similar, you know, in the United States, we see that happening with House resolutions all the time, where just that one that comes to mind, as I'm positive you're familiar with, where there was a House resolution um, against anti-Semitism, and somehow that devolved into a House resolution into speaking out against all hatred. But even, even still, nonetheless, these statements that are being made by the United Nations carry a lot of weight. And I think as legal scholars in America, we're, we're often taught in constitutional law that there's this system of checks and balances at play to keep every body, every branch of government in check. What role does the United Nations watch play in terms of providing checks and balances on the United Nations? Well, that's, that's actually a very important issue. Those of us who, are, who deal with our own domestic legal systems and political systems are used to, if you're coming from the United States or Canada or European democracies, you're used to the very basic notion that the institutions of your democracy contain within them, and that's the, the very you know, lifeblood of the democracy, that the, the rulers don't have unlimited power, that they are checked by a legislative assembly, Congress, under free and fair elections. The, the rulers are checked, are held to account by an independent judiciary, they're held to account by a uh, vigorous and free uh, press. They're held to account by population, which has freedom of expression and freedom of assembly and can rise up and, and speak their mind and speak out against uh, injustices as they may see it. So all of those things are very significant checks. Also notions of federalism, you know, what, what the state can do versus federal government that limit the power of the rulers, the ruling, the ruling authorities. At the United Nations, you really don't have that. So when, when the General Assembly adopts a resolution, uh, that's it. I mean, yes, the Security Council can have ultimate power on issues of peace and security, but if the Security Council decides something or the General Assembly or the Human Rights Council, and the Human Rights Council makes a decision, you don't like it. If a government is wronged, if the majority exceeds its authority and acts in a, for, in a fashion that's ultra vires, I was here, I'll give you an example. Uh, of how there is no recourse when an injustice happens. When the Human Rights Council was created, it was in 2000, 2006, the General Assembly uh, disbanded the old Commission on Human Rights and created the new and improved Human Rights Council, which began in June 2006. And for the first year was trying to create its own rules and its own structures. And in June 2007, they met to adopt their, their founding rules. And there was a lot of politics going on until late at night. And they were obliged to adopt their rules before midnight but in the end, they went past midnight, which they weren't supposed to do because of the membership changed. And, and they broke their own rules and they pretended it never happened. They also, um, they made, it, they made a, a deal that was going to keep, preserve the agenda item that singles out Israel alone, something that the United States had objected to and many democracies had objected to. Kofi Annan 
former Secretary General of the UN, then he himself had strongly objected to that. And the final pact in creating the new Human Rights Council's rules was to keep the anti-Israel agenda item, where you have an agenda item on the whole world, then one on Israel alone. That was the pact that they made, the majority of the countries, and then they brought it before the plenary. And this is at midnight in June 2007, I was there, and the president said, we've reached an agreement. You know, this was like midnight in 10 minutes, let's say, or midnight in five minutes. So we reached agreement, but before I bring it to a vote, um, you all go home tonight and tomorrow, we'll take action tomorrow. And the next morning, they, they actually did not want to vote on it because it turns out Canada wanted to, to object. They wanted it to be a consensus, the powers that be. When they met the next morning, the, the membership had changed. There was a new president. The new president said, well, we've adopted it last night and now we're going to move on. And Canada took the floor and said, what do you mean? You, you said, go home. We're going to take action tomorrow morning. We never had a chance to vote on this package. We want to vote on this package and we want to vote no. And the, the president said, we don't know what you mean. Action was taken last night. It's all been done. And then he said, I'm going to put it to a vote. And the majority voted that action had been taken, which of course it hadn't. You could just watch the video and you could read transcripts. And, and so reality was denied in front of your very eyes. And there was no recourse. The United States, uh, ultimately Poland and one or two other countries made submissions, I believe in July 2007, that are on the record detailing the gross breach of the council's own basic procedures. The Canadian uh, delegate at the time passionately took the floor and said, what you're doing now is laying a precedent of, of breaking your own elementary procedures that does not bode well. And uh, there was no recourse. A legislative body of the United Nations, the Human Rights Council, acted in breach of the most elementary procedures in creating its institution building packages, it was called, the IVP. When something like that happens in a domestic country, you go to court, you have a ruling that the, the, the manner in which something was adopted was unconstitutional, and it's declared null and void. And here there was no one to speak out. And so that's why you need a group like UN Watch. And you know, we are independently created and credited by the UN, founded by someone who was a great US civil rights leader, Morris Abram, marched arm in arm with Martin Luther King, fought against discrimination in America and the South, uh, helped win the 1963 case of Gray versus Saunders, ruling that all, all Americans are equal and one man, one vote, one person, one vote. And because of course, blacks had their votes treated differently in their discriminatory county unit system in, in the state of Georgia. And uh, he fought that. And eventually he became US ambassador here in Geneva, but he had served himself in the 1960s on a UN committee dealing with discrimination. He was a human rights expert. He had been a UN expert. And he had the idea in 1993 to create UN Watch, that you needed an outside body that would hold the United Nations to its own charter, not against the United Nations, not trying to destroy it and bash it. We need the United Nations. We need it to work. And in order for it to work, we need to hold it to account. And that's what UN Watch tries to do. And it really is a, a necessary uh, institution uh, to provide a check and a balance in, uh, in an organization that is of extreme importance for people around the world. No question. And I think that that story goes to demonstrate just how stark the contrast is in the, the foundation and the constitution of the United Nations as compared to, as you mentioned, the United States, Canada, other European democracies, etc. But you mentioned that 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 story that you shared um, in the founding of the, the Human Rights Council set a could have set a precedent for disregarding procedures. And I'm curious if you and your experience have noticed that because of that precedent, um, the idea that 
you don't need to follow procedure and that um, you know, these, these countries can either unilaterally or band together speak out on issues that um, maybe don't reflect the idea of the entire deliberative body. Have you noticed that that has become a trend and, and is that a problem in your, in your idea? Well, the, certainly there is a culture of disregard for the rule of law, uh, for a rules-based system here at the Human Rights Council on, on numerous occasions. They will, the, the powers that be, whether it's the secretariat, which is the bureaucracy that works arm in arm with the significant political powers at the council, they, they will disregard what the rules are and are primarily guided by political reasons. So there could be a deadline and when you're supposed to submit things, they'll disregard the deadline. And it depends who's more powerful. If it's China, if it's the 56 nation Islamic group, uh, you know, depends who's doing it, who's speaking out. When I, when I speak and we bring victims of human rights violations, dissidents, political prisoners to speak, they'll routinely be interrupted, even though you're not allowed to be interrupted. The, those countries interrupting them will make spurious objections uh, when you're, you're only really allowed to make a point of order if there's actually been a real breach of procedure. Instead, countries will interrupt our dissident speaking and, and use a frivolous, they will call a point of order, even though it's not a procedural objection, they just they just don't like what the person's saying, to which they are entitled to make a right of reply on the substance later on. And rather than the chairman, uh, who's advised by the secretariat, so you have to understand the, the, chair, the chairs and the, the bureaucracy are very much working in sync. And they, they're under pressure. You know, if, if, I'm, if I bring someone to speak out against abuses by China, you know, they're afraid to continue to let us speak, that they'll, they'll get penalized in some form or other uh, by Chinese power. So it's the easiest thing is just to, is to come down hard on the NGO, which has no power. So I, 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 it's hard to point specifically if that act of contempt for rule of law led directly to what happens, but there's no question there is a culture of disregard for a rules-based system. And certainly our rights are disregarded. Our material has been censored repeatedly. Uh, and we know from UN officials who will tell us that behind closed doors, the, the secretariat gives instructions to, pardon my French, screw us over in, in various ways um, to, to abuse their procedures, to disadvantage UN Watch and to harm us in various ways. They can't do it all the time, but, but we, we know as a fact that, that they do it. And, um, and that's a certain culture and it, it, it's sad. Well, it's, it's gotta be frustrating, especially um, as you mentioned in that disregard. And, and I have to be honest, when you said, pardon my French, what followed it was nowhere near as bad as what I thought may. Um, but you know, I want to touch on the, the bureaucracy um, and speaking out against specific countries in just a moment. Um, but before we turn there, I'm curious if your work with the United Nations, if you've seen a jurisdictional overlap between the UN and the ICC, and if at all, how those two bodies interplay with each other. The ICC is, is a separate body and, um, and has some affiliation with the United Nations and issues reports to the UN. They usually, they usually operate independently. The interplay you might have is certainly when the Human Rights Council will sometimes send its information to try to influence uh, cases that are, that are developing in, in the ICC. It's referenced, and they're, they're both operating in, in the international space, but organizationally, they're, they're distinct entities. Great. Thank you for that. So before we turn to discussing the United Nations today and COVID-19, all these things that are happening around us, you mentioned the, the bureaucratic system and that sometimes the chair people of the different committees are under a lot of pressure, immense amounts of pressure 
to keep certain countries happy and appease countries. And you mentioned, um, just as an example, sometimes um, you might be penalized for speaking out against a country like China. Are there countries that um, in your work with the Human Rights Council carry the most weight in that body? And are there countries that have the, the ability to sort of serve as swing votes and sway certain decisions either way? Well, I'm not sure. You know, I, there was the ones, there used to be the Cold War. So there you really had two opposing blocs and then you might have what you call the swing vote. Today, there, there isn't that distinction between two sides. So not sure if there's really a swing vote. There are various important blocs. The EU has a very important block. I'd say that they have the, the, the block of legitimacy because the EU brings with it 28 countries. The Human Rights Council is only, uh, has a representative sample. So you might have only you know, six or so EU countries who might sit on the, on the Human Rights Council at a given time. When, when they decide to support, when the EU decides to support a resolution, that is a sign of legitimacy for that resolution. Uh, wh whether it's correct or not, that's the perception. So, for example, an issue that crops up often is the issue of Israel, the Arab and Islamic states for decades have introduced resolutions singling out Israel for condemnation. And they try very much, the Palestinians and the Arab and Islamic states try to get the EU to support those resolutions. Because if they don't get the EU's support, then it's considered that they're, you know, if it's just the Arab and Islamic states supported by Venezuela and Russia and so forth and countries that are not democratic then it, there, there is an understanding on their part that they're lacking uh, legitimacy. So I'd say the EU is an important bloc. Obviously, the Islamic bloc, they don't always vote together. They vote together on issues related to Israel and some Islamic issues, but otherwise, th those can certainly split. Obviously, Iran and Saudi Arabia are, are uh, antagonists. And so on a, on a given issue, you could have all kinds of, of splits. In the Islamic world, Saudi Arabia has a Cold War going on with Qatar. So those things can emerge from time to time. There are regional groups, the African group, they don't necessarily vote together. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't. So I'm, I'm not sure if there's a particular group that would sway. The only one that comes to mind really is, is the EU that, that could give legitimacy to a particular initiative that, that, that is recognized by all as, as significant. In that, where the EU has so much sway and, and perceived legitimacy, do you find that there are ever conflicts of interest amongst specifically the Human Rights Council where countries are making accusations of other countries where perhaps they're not as seemingly self-aware while they're doing it? Everything is political. I mean, the, the, uh, these are political bodies and I'd say the, you see the politics manifest very overtly and extremely in many cases. I, I, you know, when, when we the citizens put pressure on our democracies to speak out, if there's massacre happening in Sudan and we pressure, let's say in Darfur and the yeah, about 15 years ago, there was genocide happening in Darfur, and that became a big issue in, in, in America and other countries. And so our democracies rightly brought this issue up at the United Nations. That was, that was countries doing the right thing. And uh, there, there was no real political interest to speak out on Darfur, but they did the right thing, and that happened sometimes. And then many countries really act politically in their economic interests, the interests of their various uh, regional blocs and so forth. So, yes, I would say that, you know, uh, conflicts of interest emerge all the time. And, uh, you know, if, if there's a, a vote on China and China is a member of the council, they're not currently a member, but they've been a member every year, except every seventh year, you're obliged to go off. So otherwise, they're always a member. And there'll be a vote on China, they will vote and they will speak out and they'll pressure countries 
Uh, you know, we're seeing now, speaking about China, we, the EU was going to issue a report a few days ago. This is not at the United Nations, but it's really the same. The EU was going to issue a report a few days ago on China's global disinformation efforts, where China is, try, is trying to tell lies to evade responsibility for things that it did uh, ineffectively and wrongly after the coronavirus outbreak, when people were speaking out and China muzzled them. And rather than take responsibility for its actions, China has been publishing all kinds of lies and disinformation to blame the US and others for, for having created the, the virus. And the EU was going to write about this and then came under massive pressure from China and then they diluted their report. So if, if, that happens in, if that's happening at the EU, which is independent of China, then you know, all the more so at the United Nations where UN officials fear China, it's very significant now at the United Nations and becoming more aggressive than ever before. So yes, there's conflicts of interests happening all the time. And it's really, it's a, it's a wrestling match. The words that you see speak of international law and human rights, but uh, when you sit there and, and if you know a little bit about what's happening behind the scenes, or sometimes even in front of you in, in the plenary of the council, you could see that it's a wrestling match and the strongest wins. So you provided a perfect segue here to talk about this wrestling match that happens at the United Nations in the context of COVID-19. Um, as you know, I'm stationed in Chicago and here in the United States, the vast majority of the news coverage as it relates to the United Nations in recent weeks has focused on the WHO and the United Nations role in the pandemic. President Trump has been largely critical of, of the WHO and the United Nations since um, COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. So I'm wondering, you know, you're in Geneva, you obviously have a different perspective. And then on top of that, you're working with the United Nations. What is your perception of how the UN's work has shifted since the COVID pandemic began? The UN's having a very difficult time, as, as everyone is, but the UN is, is, not, is not a very agile institution. It's got a lot of different elements, not necessarily working in sync. And you might have democracies that are trying to achieve international peace and human rights, and you might have dictatorships that want to do the opposite. So you really, you have a body that is not working in concert in generally. The interpretations of what efficient and effective and success are will, will completely vary depending on, on the different parties at the UN. So the UN is not an agile institution. The COVID-19 has made it very hard for the UN to function. Part of the UN, a big part of it is, is physically getting together and voting. So we haven't been able to get together for obvious reasons. And they've tried to make virtual meetings but it, they, they don't have the technology yet to, to vote using virtual platforms. That'll be interesting once that comes and if, if, if there'll be, you know, there'll be security issues on that, uh, on whether the voting is, is, is done properly. So currently, they, you know, we, we were in the middle of a Human Rights Council debate uh, in March, in the middle of March, when suddenly they suspended themselves because here in Switzerland, the authorities uh, banned uh, gatherings of, of certain, certain members. So... I'd say the UN is trying to find its way. They've certainly had informal discussions. They've, they've, to show that they're effective, they've adopted some meaningless resolutions using a silence procedure where they circulated a text and if no one you know, emailed an objection, then they adopted it. But to have a meaningful uh, gathering, they haven't really done any yet. Uh, I mean, you know, in time they can figure it out, but right now they are kind of uh, stuck, I would say. Well, and it's interesting too, you mentioned that this is a, a body that's not agile in a time where agility is perhaps um, an organization's biggest asset. I'm curious if what, you know, the, the WHO is, is making recommendations internationally, if, you know, regardless of what the situation is within a specific country or jurisdiction, 
the WHO is providing recommendations on how we should be approaching the pandemic. Are there concerns coming from the United Nations about you know, different states, different countries not adhering to those recommendations? And, and if so, what role does the United Nations serve in facilitating world health? Well, you, you do have a bit of a dilemma. You know, people in America, let's say, let's say Republicans or conservatives, they're, they're very angry at the WHO. And a lot of people are upset at the WHO. In America, you have an internal debate. Was it Trump's fault? He's blaming the WHO. So you have a very much internal U.S. debate happening. But people around the world are upset at the WHO. And it, there's no question that the WHO praised China at a time when it shouldn't have been praised for acting transparently and taking the right measures at a time when China was actually holding back information and punishing and silencing and arresting those courageous individuals in Wuhan and elsewhere who dared to speak out, to write articles. They've, they've been arrested, they've been disappeared, they've been muzzled. So the WHO should not have been praising China, and they did. And, and that's a problem, and we need to, to, to figure out what went wrong and to fix it. But, you know, institutionally, you, you do have a bit of a dilemma. Those, let's say, uh, skeptics of the UN say the UN should have been tougher. But, you know, if they make the UN tougher in general, so does that mean that it would have the power to interfere and override perhaps an American decision? And would that give them the authority? How much authority do you want to give international institutions? Do you want them to interfere and to disagree and contradict with American decisions? And, well, many Americans would not want that. Um, certainly not conservatives don't want to grant any authority and powers to international institutions. But uh, so you have a dilemma. Do, you, do you, you, you want to make the organization, that international organization stronger? That means uh, surrendering, in theory, it means surrendering some independent sovereign authority, if you will. I don't know if it means surrendering sovereignty, but, you know, it's, it's, it's one or the other. If the international institution is stronger and has certain strengths, powers vis-a-vis individual countries, you might be, you might like that very much when it's able to pressure uh, communist and repressive and totalitarian China, you may not like it if, it if it's going to pressure the US or other democracies. So there is a dilemma there, and I don't, I'm not sure that everyone's fully thought that out. Uh, but clearly the World Health Organization is in need of fixing. I recall that in 2003, Gro Brundtland was a Norwegian leader who at the time was head of the World Health Organization. When China was being non-cooperative with the SARS uh, virus, she spoke out and, and held China to account, and China actually responded and started you know, reacting in a better way, being more cooperative. And this time we see Dr. Tedros, who has not been very strong at all. So there, there's a lot of work for the WHO, to a lot, of, a lot of room for improvement. How to achieve that is not obvious. The U.S. is currently withholding funds. That could be a, a, a lever, but it, it, you need expertise. You need people to come in and try to give guidance on, on how to fix things. And international institutions are very heavy and they're plagued by, by political interests. You have different appointees who are often influenced by their countries of origin. So it's, it's, it's a bit of a tower of Babel. There's no question about that. You know, and it seems just in, in your brief response, like it's almost an impossible feat to achieve, especially in this time where the immediacy is what we're looking for. But you touched on this idea of perhaps being able to override in sovereign nations' decisions and how much authority is too much authority. But I think what's interesting as an American citizen is we're seeing how much COVID-19 is exposing a number of flaws in our governing system, in our general approach to world health. And as you mentioned, there are people in the United States that are sort of outraged by these scientific recommendations that are being made. But I'm curious if you feel the international landscape has shifted 
as a result of COVID-19. And, and you, know, you mentioned the United States withholding funds from the WHO. Do you think that COVID-19 is going to change this international conversation that we're having? Too early to tell uh, how, how, things, how things will go. I'm not going to venture any, uh, an opinion on that. We'll, you know, things change every day. So we'll, we'll just have to see how, how things develop. That was a, a brilliant and diplomatic answer. Um, as we start to conclude here, you have devoted so much of your work and your energy and your passion to the work of the UN Watch. And in terms of general awareness of what you and UN Watch do, what are some things that you wish both Americans and global citizens alike were aware of um, in terms of your work? I think people need to know that the United Nations can work if it's held to account and if our democracies do the right thing. Sometimes we talk about UN reform at the Human Rights Council. Some European countries say, let's, you know, in a few years, we'll, we'll have another reform and we'll talk about it. And I said, I don't need to talk about UN reform. You, the democracies, have the power to do things right away. So for example, France and Britain are running for membership of the Human Rights Council. I have no doubt they'll be elected and they'll be members in 2021. And each of those countries, any country has the right to introduce resolutions. They can introduce a resolution on human rights in Zimbabwe, which has never been done before. And it's a country that throws its dissidents in prison. Pakistan had a Christian mother of five on death row for years. She was accused of so-called blasphemy where you can be executed in Pakistan. Never been a single resolution, special session, commission of inquiry on Pakistan. Women's rights activists in Saudi Arabia are tortured and jailed for the crime of trying to change the discriminatory male guardian system. And you go around the world, you have uh, uh, Cuba throws dissidents in prison, is using the COVID-19 right now to persecute uh, its own population under the cover of protecting health. And around the world, you have human rights abusers, and they're going ignored. And our democracies have the power to introduce resolutions. Even a country that's not a member of the council could introduce a resolution. And they're not doing so, only in a, only in, in a very small minority of cases. So we have the power, our, our countries, our representatives have the power to shine a spotlight. Doesn't mean the resolutions will always be adopted, but they do have the power to shine a spotlight on abuses that would otherwise go obscured. And that's a big part of the work of UN Watch is bringing victims to testify from around the world. In the past year, we brought people from China, Russia, Cuba, uh, Iran, um, and, and numerous other uh, urgent situations of human rights. We brought them to testify in the hope that the international community will take action. And again, they, they have those powers to do it right now. And it's really a question of political will. The citizens need to be holding their governments to account and being aware they're invited to sign up at unwatch.org to receive our newsletters. People who are interested in the work of UN Watch are welcome to follow us on Twitter at UN Watch or on Facebook, Instagram, my own account, Hillel Neuer on Twitter, and get latest information and ultimately hold our elected representatives to account and ask them to try to make the United Nations work, to work for human rights victims who need it most and ultimately help make the world a better place. Hillel, ultimately, that is the goal of the United Nations, right? I mean, you obviously and UN Watch play such a huge role in that, but you know, we are just looking for the United Nations to provide us some guidance in trying to make the world a better place. And, and we are so grateful for your fight and your role in that. And thank you again for, for providing your social media information. I mean, I think as a regular consumer and as a regular citizen of the world, um, the best thing that we can do is stay informed and hold our leaders to account. And as we conclude here, I'm wondering if looking ahead and beyond COVID-19 and, and beyond um, this sort of immediate 
feeling of, of maybe doom isn't the right word that we feel, but certainly a feeling of newness and a feeling of adaptation. If there are any thoughts that you'd like to impart on the listeners looking, looking ahead and looking beyond this as something that um, perhaps we have to look forward to or some new resolutions or some new highlights that the United Nations might be, might be focusing on beyond COVID-19. Well, the United Nations can always play a role in bringing people together when it works. And, you know, that, that requires political will. And we're at a time when there's a lot of polarization, not only in America, but around the world. And part of that is because you do have dictatorships, uh, whether it's China, Russia, other authoritarian regimes, Cuba, Venezuela, that are not seeking to achieve the same goals that make, makes it hard. And so I'm not sure the United Nations is always able to be the, the one voice that we want it to be, uh, but at least we have to use that forum to defend the values of human rights, of international peace and security that, that we believe in. And if, if the UN can't be in one voice, at least let it be a forum where, where the truth and the, the right values can be expressed. Well, hello, that is beautiful sentiment to close with. Again, I'm, I'm so grateful to you for, for making this a priority. And um, we at the Podvocate are so grateful for your time. You've provided such a fascinating inside perspective. And this will, this will certainly be a new take for us at the Podvocate. And we're grateful that you've provided us that opportunity. My pleasure. Wishing you much success. Thank you so much. That's all from us here at the Podvocate. Thanks again for joining us today. Our team wants to hear from you. If there's a topic you want the show to cover, an event you'd like us to address, or just something you're passionate about, please email us at thepodvocate at gmail.com. Our producer is Jim Alritz. Our senior editor is Radhika Sutherland. Our associate editors are Haley Burridge and Jake Kupferman, and our editor-in-chief is Matt Doran. Special thanks to Dean Michael Kaufman for providing us the resources and support to make this show possible, and thanks to our predecessors, the Dialogue De Novo team, for launching a podcast on our campus. From Loyola University Chicago School of Law, this has been The Podvocate.